From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MVW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. edition of the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'm Chase Parm. Today we're going to talk with Hunter Carpenter, former Ole Miss basketball player. He's a uh, partner with Redbird Capital out of uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, also the chair of the investment committee for the Ole Miss Endowment. So Hunter is going to talk to us a little bit about the Ole Miss Endowment, about struggles with uh, COVID, the pandemic, with the university, uh, just really universities in general as they uh, try to do the best they can from budgetary standpoints. We're going to relive some uh, some late 1990s Ole Miss basketball with him as well, talk about some NCAA tournament games and more from that standpoint. And he's going to tell us the PowerPoint story. Finally, Hunter's name came up through Ole Miss circles several years ago when Andy Kennedy was not extended by Jeffrey Vitter. And uh, over a PowerPoint, at least in some aspects, that uh, did not have that attention. So Hunter's going to tell the story there. Hunter and I have uh, become pretty good friends over the last couple years. I think you'll enjoy it. And then there at the end, uh, he and I share something. We both adopted children. Hunter's got a pretty crazy one, though. He uh, he adopted two girls out of the Congo, and he will talk about that story uh, also and everything that goes along with that. So uh, we visit with Hunter for... Just short of an hour here as we uh, as we talk to him on a podcast brought to you every single day by the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford. You know to use the Speed Pass Plus app. You know that is one of the safest ways to get fuel in uh, in Mississippi at any Blue Sky location right now. They will uh, they will take care of you. And also, uh, if you're potentially looking for employment, they're looking for uh, shift leaders, looking for store manager positions at Blue Sky locations, at What a Combo locations. They offer top pay, 401k, health care, bonuses, and more. You can find out more at 601 249 0403 or uh, on Facebook at What a Combo Inc. And I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studio. 662-257-1900 is the phone number. Highway 25 South right there in Amory Corey will take care of you. Wants to be a truck guy. Wants to be your truck guy. Wants to be your car guy. Let him uh, help you out. He gives you a quote in as little as 15 minutes during business hours. Gives you a discount too if you mention the podcast. So uh, that's Clark Ford and Amory. And now we'll go to Hunter on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Hunter Carpenter now joining us on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Hunter, uh, appreciate the time today. We, uh, you know, we started talking, I guess, a couple of years ago, as um, over email and phone calls. Met with you when you were in town, and uh, I'm, I'm going to make you tell the story in a minute. But I think, in some ways, our friendship kind of started over your, uh, your, your your crazy PowerPoint that had a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did not realize uh, that it was the PowerPoint. Um, I'm not a big social media guy, and I think. Uh, it had probably gone six months before I realized that uh, uh, there had been a slightly larger than intended audience for uh, a summer project at, at my uh, at my firm. So um, it, it, it quickly, uh, I guess, mushroomed into something more than it was intended to be. Yeah, it uh, it it, t- it took off. We uh, not really at your expense, just because of what happened. It was a running joke there for a pretty good while. We mentioned or whatever. And I, I'll be honest, the first time I saw your email, I thought, oh, I don't know how this is going to be. Like I was opening it almost with like with trembling fingers a little bit. Like he's about to, he's he, he's about to kill us because I don't know what's uh, what's been going on at that point. But uh, it, when, when you when you hear the folklore around that a little bit, I mean, what kind of went through your mind? Because like I said, you you didn't really know how it had taken off. And as I'll get you to go through, it wasn't the intended meaning either. No, it wasn't. I mean, it's it's a funny story because what started as something small, 
uh, uh, morphed, I guess, if you will, um, some of what uh, my investment firm does is sports-related, or, or a large part of what we do is sports-related investing. And um, oftentimes we'll have interns that, um, you know, college kids who go to SMU or go to other schools, you know, interning for a private equity firm in the summer is a pretty good gig. And there for a while we would have, you know, kids that would come and do different projects for us during the summer. And uh, as I was sitting back, we were sitting back one day saying, like, okay, we've got, uh, you know, we have this kid in, um and we got to figure out something for him to do. What are we going to do? I was like, well, let's teach him the investment business. Let's give him a little project. And, you know, we sort of, I said, well, I've got a hypothesis. Has anybody else got anything? I was like, no, no. I said, well, I've got this hypothesis that uh, Ole Miss basketball is somewhat mired in mediocrity. Um, I think that our coach has been there a long time. Um, and, you know, but I just, I don't know, I just feel like we're far away from being consistently in the NCAA tournament. And I, I feel like while we win a lot of games, we don't have a lot of quality wins. So let's figure out, like, where is Ole Miss basketball? Where is Ole Miss basketball related to our peer group? Often that's what you do in investing. You look at a company and say, what are the advantages or disadvantages versus the peer group? And why don't we want to own this thing? And I said, look, let's give the intern the project that does he want to own Ole Miss basketball or not? And um, that's kind of how it started. And, you know, for too long, you know, you have a bunch of guys and, and girls at our firm who we all love sports and, you know, kind of we all were messing around with the project all summer. And we ended up writing an algorithm and we ended up doing all these crazy things and going pretty deep uh, from a sports analytics standpoint, which is some of what we do anyway. But it was it became a lot of fun. And the funniest part, Chase, I don't know if I've ever told you this, is like it, summer was kind of wrapping up. And I said, um, you know, hey guys, where are we on the, pro- I came back from vacation. So, Hey, where are we on kind of the, where are we on the project? And, uh, one of my guys said, he said, well, uh, our intern quit and the project's not done. I said, the intern quit. They said, yeah. I said, yeah. I was like, what? I said, so you're telling me the intern fired us because we don't pay our, and like at this point, this kid wasn't a paid intern. He was just kind of doing some special project work. So I was like, the intern fired us and the guys are kind of like, yeah. And I said, you got to be kidding me. What a dream come true. You're an intern at a private equity firm. You get to a sports related project. Come to find out the kid hated sports. He was like some champion chess player, hated sports and didn't tell us for the whole summer. And we were making him grind through like, you know, 12 years of RPI rankings and Kim Palm data and all this stuff. So it was kind of funny because Actually, uh, a couple of us had to like do some real work after the intern uh, left us or fired us, uh, as the case may be. So, and I, I, I was looking for it right now. Actually, at some point, I obtained a copy of it, but I can't find it in front of me. But yeah, it was multiple schools that it was compared to, a lot of different things, as you said, peer group and RPI rankings. And w- when was this? I, I guess, when was this? And then how did it get from there to in any type of administrative level as this thing moved forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I so so you know I can't remember exactly what summer it was. I mean, obviously, I I was obviously frustrated with the state of the program and where we were. Uh, and if I had known that it was going to be more broadly disseminated, I probably would have withheld some of the stronger opinions that were that were offered in there because you know it, it could have been a little more fair and balanced, uh, frankly, and, and not as overt. Um, I, I have nothing against AK. He, he took Ole Miss basketball from a very, very dark place. Uh, sometimes it's just, it's, it's stale and it's, it's time for everybody to move on. So I, I kept kind of harping on, uh, Ross at the time, like, Ross, I, I just don't feel like we're making any progress with our basketball program. 
I, you know, yeah, we're going to win 21 games this year, but you know, I, I don't feel like in terms of from a management standpoint that with the schedule we play that really we're getting value out of, you know, like a lot of people could show up and win, you know, 2021 games with that schedule. And that was just my opinion. And uh, so I think I sent that it was probably, you know, 14 or 15, somewhere in there. Um, I, I sort of remember it because I had been very quiet when Mike and you know, Michael White, and obviously, you know, that we're, we're very close friends. So I always felt like that so long as Mike was at Louisiana tech or really anywhere uh, that I was biased and I was because I was very biased. Mike's one of my best friends and I had really stayed out of the mix on that because I, I knew I brought a very overt bias that, you know, Mike White would be a great head coach at University mm-hmm. of Mississippi. Once Mike got the Florida job, I felt like, you know, Mike's got one of the top five jobs in all the five, 10 jobs in all the country. Um, you know, he, he's not going to be at Ole Miss. Like I'm not, I'm no longer biased. Um, and so when that, when Mike kind of moved on to Florida was when probably I ratcheted up, you know, that's probably when that happened this summer, Mike got the job at Florida a year or a year or so into, you know, Mike being at Florida. Yeah, so way before it even became into like the lexicon of Ole Miss as far as it being any type of influence to anything. I mean, it was yeah, it was nowhere near that offseason. Exactly. I sent it to so, – so to play it out, so I sent it to Ross. And frankly, you know, we laughed about it. I think there was even some joke at our Christmas party about the intern that fired us because he didn't like sports or something like that. But I sent it – I totally forgot about it. And, you know, uh, fast forward a couple of years and, and – uh, you know, I think it was obviously when Jeff didn't extend Andy's contract and Jeff called me and he said, you know, hey, I'm looking at this analysis you did on Ole Miss basketball. I'm like, really? You know, I think I just sent the deck to Ross and uh-huh. I probably sent it to, you know, I probably sent it to, to, you know, maybe Coach Evans or somebody like that. Just like, ah, Coach, take a look at this. What do you think? You know, type thing. And, and so, um, you know, Vitter calls me and I'm like, you're looking at my analysis? Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, of course, you know, Vitter is nothing if not a data geek, right? I mean, you know, that's really what, what his, his career was built on was analyzing data. So, you know, in his hands, it probably, uh, you know, it kind of probably meant a little more than your pedestrian bystander, if you will, in his hands because of his data orientation. And so, you know, I, 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 you know, whether he should or shouldn't have extended AK and the ramifications and all that, I really had nothing to do with any of that because it was an old and stale document. But, you know, uh, I was informed by some of my friends on social media that, you know, I was kind of, uh, I guess, uh, made to be the, uh, uh, you know, the culprit in AK not getting extended, which, you know, couldn't have been further from the truth. Was it frustrating in some ways simply because had you known Vitter was going to take that into any sort of whatever or that it was even going to be an item that could be interpreted as a pro or con thing? Like you said, you probably would have oh. made – you know, you done a lot more different kind of work with it. I mean, it was not – Yeah, yeah. It was not set it up in that regard. Exactly. It, it, you know, 100%. I would have approached it, you know, in a much more fair and balanced way. I would approach it with the pros and cons and what – for that document to be used in a, in a real meaningful way, if you're really going to do sort of a history of Ole Miss basketball, you would sort of say like, okay, um, where are we versus, and this is sort of how I think about a lot of coaches is where are you versus the historical mean of this program? And are you outperforming that? Um, and so if the answer is yes, then okay, you're doing a good job. Now 
what's the future under you? And so, you know, I would have said that, you know, under Andy, that his, he was, you know, on his best ball, you know, except for, you know, Sean and, uh, you know, uh, 81 to 84 or wherever, when they, you know, went to the tournament once or twice. I, mean, I think, I think when we went to the tournament in 96 or 97, it was our first year of the tournament. That was the second ever MCA tournament appearance. Right. And so, you know, I knew a much, you know, uh, Keith, Mike, Jason, Sue, and I, we all knew a much different Ole Miss basketball because we played in three NCAA tournaments. But, but historically, Ole Miss is probably the worst basketball program in the conference, I would, or at least certainly is down there with the likes of Georgia and others. And, and, and so, anyway, if I was, I, I would have approached that document with a very different way if I'd known someone was going to use it uh, in, in matters of someone's job, um, you know, type of thing. What have you made of, of Kermit's 24 months or whatever it's been to this point? Yeah, I, I think that uh, Kermit is the perfect fit um, at Ole Miss. I think he's at a, the perfect place in his career where he settled. He's, you know, he's he had a, uh, a great 15 years at middle to really find himself as a coach. Um, and, you know, he built teams that, uh, you know, they were never all airport, right? And he would he take his and beat you, or you know, take his and beat you, or you know, take yours and beat you, or take his and beat you. Whatever the saying is, and so I just think that, and one of the things that I think that Kermit Kermit has he struggled a little bit this year. You know, he, 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 you know that first year they had a real identity, and I think he was trying to build in an identity, uh, and he's trying to build an identity. I just think he's a perfect fit. I mean, obviously. You know, TD and that group that first year, you know, that was a great team. You look at it, you know, man, I mean, that, that team was just absolutely fantastic. And obviously now you know that TD is going to be a, you know, 13, 14-year pro. But I, I think what Kermit's doing is a perfect fit. I think he's a perfect fit for what Ole Miss needs as a basketball coach. I mean, you need someone that's highly charismatic, that's super engaging with the fans uh, because it's – you, know, you, you don't have a lot to sell uh, historically in terms of historical success. So what you have now is you have the pavilion, you have a coach with a ton of energy who co- will coach you hard, but also I think the fans and his players know that um, man, his heart is fully invested in that program. So I'm excited. I, you know, you, you, you know, this year was a rough year. Um, I felt like, you know, they, had a couple games that, and a couple, a couple games, a couple injuries, and you know, basketball ultimately it's a ten possession year, and you, you, you know, your season can be defined by ten possessions, and that may be a possession in Brooklyn or, you know, where you lose a close game, and that that sort of fast forward. So I'm super excited about Kermit. I think he's going to do a great job. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like baseball, as in you get back out there quickly, but at the same time, it takes a little bit to reverse momentum, especially in basketball, because they're so road and home dependent too. That yeah, you lose a couple games, and suddenly it's kind of hard to get that snowball snowball moved back in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, you look at, I mean, this year, I think there was three games at home we were up ten with with you know five or four or five minutes to go, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think it was Auburn, Arkansas, and maybe LSU. Um, of course. I'm saying that off off the cuff, yeah, sure. and with the now the acknowledgement that I don't think anybody remembers anything that happened prior to March 15th anymore. Uh, but but way back when basketball season was going on, you know we had you know those three or four games there, and then even the Memphis game, right? I mean we we had a chance to win it, probably I should have won it type thing, and just it kind of slipped through us. So you turn a season around real quick, vis-a-vis 
you know, those 10 possessions going your way. Yeah, and it's the kind of – you mentioned an identity. That's exactly right with Kermit because he's looking for a certain toughness, especially in the last two to five minutes of both halves and kind of just the way that, that they did. They wilted a little bit in those in, in those you know, pivotal moments as they yeah. as, as they move yeah. forward. You know, you mentioned three NCAA tournaments while you were uh, while you were there. What I mean, I'm, I, 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 can, I can go through your career statistics. We want to mesmerize everybody here in a second, but um, otherwise, I, I, I'd probably prefer we did. Okay, I don't. I think everyone will be mesmerized how bad they were. <laughs> yeah, but you know, in all honesty, I mean, Ole Miss at that point when you're coming in, it's not it's not a program with any tradition. Um. And, and and what was sort of your path there? And then what was it like just sort of, you know, being on the team, obviously, but watching that thing build as it did with the guys that you mentioned a second ago over those three or four years? Yeah, it was um, – so, so uh, Keith Carter and I played on – and Jason Smith, we played on an AAU team called Arkansas Wings. And this was, you know, in the early 90s when sort of a lot of states – just sort of had one dominant AAU program and, you know, and the wings had produced Corliss Williams and Derek Fisher, you know, you go, go down the list. There was the dominant, you know, AAU program. And we ended up having 12 division one players off of that, our AAU team, you know, three back to back to back national championships, uh, you know, one AAU gold medals and all that stuff. And um, as I was going through my recruiting, I was obviously, because of academics, I was highly recruited by a lot of the Ivy League schools and the uh, you know service academies and the you know kind of the, the usual the usual schools that uh, would would recruit a kid with a profile like me and but not any SEC schools and, and, and sort of low mid major and uh, but uh, you know I played on this team that you know was really good so I thought I can play with you know high major guys I play against them every day. And so, you know, Coach Evans and Coach Ben Oves were recruiting Keith and were recruiting um, uh, Jason. And they said, look, you know, if, if you'll walk on, and I had a, basically a full ride academically to Ole Miss, so if you'll walk on and you are who we think you are, we're going to have attrition and you'll have a scholarship, you know, you'll have a shot of scholarship at Christmas. And that's, that's what happened. Um, and it was great. And obviously Keith and I were super close and, and Mike and I had gotten to know each other even before we started and with Jason and, and, and you know, Anthony was a Boone was a close friend cause he too played on the wings here ahead of us. And there's a real familiarity. And, um, you know, I remember the first time we ever drove over to Oxford, like, I mean, it's like three hours from Little Rock. I mean, didn't have the, didn't have the internet and the Googles back then. So I was like, wow, that's, that's an interesting how close it is. So, course we're driving around with uh coach evans and mike uh, coach evans driving mike and i around her recruiting visit you know 18 year olds a homecoming at Ole miss and you know we're kind of google-eyed and coach evans looks at the back seat and says you know boys we richer miss america's here um and i think it was kind of that kind of sealed the deal right there but it was great and you know for me you know uh, i had um i had some health issues after my freshman year where i had you know heart surgery and that that sort of derailed me from my sophomore and junior year and obviously we were great and so you know i wouldn't trade anything to have gone somewhere and scored more and played more or have the lifelong friendships that i have and have played on three great teams and to get to to have played under a guy like coach evans who so profoundly influenced my life i wouldn't trade any of that and you know um I just wouldn't trade any of it, and it's it was. There's <laughs> probably two nights a week I still wake up thinking about Bryce Drew. So, yeah, well, uh, but you mentioned it. I wasn't even going to, but since you did this, and I'll apologize to all the listeners. What what was sort of, I guess, what was your vantage point as that's all playing out? And then I've talked to multiple guys about this, Mike and Keith, and different ones. Is there a way to really explain what that locker room was like after that? Well, 
I mean, my vantage point was Ansu missed his. I was on the bench. Ansu missed his first free throw, and, and if Sue was in here, I would say that's in front of him. He missed his first free throw so bad, we like it nearly hurt people on the bench, and so we were thinking the second one, like, come on, dude, just like if you miss it, just barely miss it, so they can't, you know, dead ball. Well, you know, it, well, crazy stuff can happen in the NCAA tournament. Crazy stuff can happen in one possession, anytime, anywhere. And, you know, the crazy thing is this, after, you know, Keith was on the, it was down there and I blame Keith on this, you know, Keith went up to get the rebound, knocked it out of bounds. I think if they had replay, <laughs> they'd probably go to the replay and realize it was our ball, not theirs, but that's beside the point. But Keith knocked the ball out of bounds and um, we didn't call timeout. And I'm sure Coach Evans thinks about this every night. They, they had a play and they called their play. It was called Pacer. It was, they knew exactly yeah. what they were going to do. And, you know, from there it was like, shit, it's like slow motion. You know, and you knew as soon as the ball went up in the air, it was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And when he let it go, I was like, nope, that's it. Let's go. I mean, I didn't even look to you go in. I was like, no, nope, that's him. Let's move on here, boys. And so the feeling in the locker room was well, we had beaten Kentucky at Rupp that year. And Kentucky won the national championship. And we had a team that was kind of built for a tournament run with one exception uh, playing again, and frankly, Valpo then played like a lot more teams played today. Was sort of a stretch for spread the floor. Uh, you know, they had two or three Europeans. That that for how we guarded then, which was you know full denial, you know all that kind of stuff. That the European passing, the stretch four, the big man hitting threes, you know, all, sending little guys into put like that was the probably the biggest weakness that we had, and, and the one matchup that we weren't built for. I mean, playing against the Kentucky with all those pros who in the played sort of nineties basketball, we were fine, but playing against that slightly Euro style, big guard, all that stuff, all five guys can shoot. We, we were not, that was a bad matchup for us. Does it also haunt a little bit that when you look at the way that bracket opened up, because you would have had oh a 12 seed in the next round and an oh eight my. seed in the next round. Oh, it was, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Utah makes it out of the and Utah makes it out of our bracket, I think. Uh, Stanford, three seconds. Yeah, that's right. Stanford. Oh yeah. And it's like you look we looked at Stanford, like, are you kidding me? After that was Stanford. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean it's yes, that is that's probably actually is more haunting than actually losing a game. You know, you're gonna lose basketball, you're gonna lose in a tournament, whatever, but it's like you sort of then step back and look at the missed opportunity and you're like, geez, Louise. You, uh, I, I did pull this up. You, you said we don't have to mention it, but I'm just kind of curious. What, uh, what do you think your? Uh, let's see, let's find it. I got it right here. Just kind of curious. What do you think your uh, career field goal percentage was? Do you know? Uh, well, it probably was never enough attempts uh, in my mind, but uh, I don't know what was it. That's it was forty-seven percent. Forty-seven percent. Let's see, forty of eighty-five from the field. You you cannot be uh, barely six foot and as slow as I am and not bring some redeeming factor to the game of basketball. So I think mine was shooting. Uh, three point percentage. What was it for your career? Probably above forty percent. Thirty five hundred. Thirty five. Yeah, I like to compare that against Keith. Okay. Percentage. I can probably look that up. I'd also like to get on you for this one. You can't miss free throws. Twenty five of thirty seven from the line during your career. Here's the problem. When you don't shoot a lot of free throws, you don't have a rhythm. Well, okay. All right. So, like, in, right. Hi, in, right. in high school, if you shoot seven, eight free throws a game, you're going to go seven of eight, pretty much, or eight of eight. When you shoot free throws so sporadically in a, in, in a game, it's, you know, it's hard. 
harder. Let me put that away. You did take one three and make it against Michigan State in the NCAA tournament the uh, the next season. I think it was from about just inside half court. Oh, really? You remember it? Obviously. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, I'm in the NCAA tournament. We need we need threes late. <laughs> I go in the game, thing hits my hand. I'm like, oh, shit, why not shoot it from here? <laughs> was was there any vindication at all that like, there's just some relief when you do get that win over Villanova the next year to go, okay, we won one now, take a breath after what happened the year before? Yeah, it, 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 and actually, I think it's what enabled us to play so well against Michigan State because we played loose. You know, we were up, we were up, I think, um, we were up two or three with about a minute to go against them. And I remember looking, looking maybe a minute and a half, and uh, I remember our crowd was rocking. I mean, you know, that place was, you know, Ole Miss fans travel incredibly well in the tournament. It was always blowing me away. I mean, we had a, just a, you know, a place was packed with Ole Miss fans. And uh, we're up, I think it was two, two or three. And uh, they were in this little play where the team drills to the left, reverses, comes sort of around this uh, high ball screen. And, uh, you know, he just hits a three and, and, um, I think Swole went under the screen. He was supposed to go over the top of the screen, got buried on the screen, and then came down. I think, you know, we ran a little play and didn't get the shot we wanted. I got a bad shot. And then Mo Pete hits a little baseline jumper. And all of a sudden, you know, you're up two or three, and now you're you know down two or three. And you're like, well, then you really need a bucket. And, but we played really well that hole. And I think because we were, you know, sort of had that pressure lifted, you see why the quality of play gets better and better and better in the NCAA tournament. Because, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, sort of once you're through that first, second day, teams just are a little more relaxed. It's a lot better basketball, I think. I think that first round, you know, some people are just so tight that it, it's hard for the quality to come out. But that was a nice – that was a good game against Villanova, too. What was that coaching change like from, from, from Evans to Barnes? Uh, what, what was – kind of take me through that as a player. What was, it, what was that like? Yeah. Well – I'm probably nothing if not honest. And, um, you know, Rod was not ready for that job. I mean, he was a 32-year-old guy who had been the, the second or third assistant. I think it was actually unfair to him that he got that job. He was fortunate he had, you know, five, six seniors. You know, at the time when the season started, they had six seniors uh, or seven. Um, by the end of the year, we only had four. But uh, he, he wasn't ready for that job. Um, and so – uh, you know, we, we, we tried to help him as much as he could. But, you know, here's a 32-year-old guy who all of a sudden, or 33, I think he was a 32 or 33, is sort of thrust into that role. And uh, it was hard. It was a hard year. It was a long year. And, uh, you know, we were all we were very close as a team. Uh, you know, you had uh, two Juco guys that came in, and, and Marcus and, and Hicks and Latero Williams. We were very close to the team. You know, Mark, we all knew Latero, too, the Oxford guy. Uh, but it was a hard year. It was a really hard year because with Coach Evans, there were there were exacting standards, and you knew every day where you were. You knew every day what you were going to do. You knew every day what was going to be required of you, and you knew he was very consistent in what he demanded uh, out of practice, what he demanded. I mean, you knew what your day was going to be like, and with Coach Barnes, he – he was trying to find himself as a coach. You know, it wasn't like he had spent, you know, five years thinking about when I'm head coach at Ole Miss, this is how I'm going to do it. Here's my notebook. And here's, you know, here's my playbook. It was like, he probably thought maybe by the time I'm 40, I can get a head job somewhere. And I think you see that Rod's, you know, found himself. He's done a great job at Cal State Bakersfield. And, you know, he, his players play extremely hard, guard extremely well. And, you know, he, he found himself 
And, and, you know, he had some great teams, but he also had, you know, unprecedented talent uh, at, at Ole Miss, too. And so uh, it was it was a hard year because you go from playing like a guy like Coach – we all loved Coach Barnes, too, by the way. It's just it was – he was kind of everyone's best friend uh, as an assistant. Now he's the head coach, and he, he he's like, well, now I'm head coach. What does this mean type thing? That is probably the biggest – I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it. One of the bigger negatives when you have assistants elevated or when players know a coach because, yeah, if you're that yes man or that guy that's kind of supposed to pick everybody back up and tell them it's going to be okay and slap them on the tail, you can't really change your mindset in, in a lot of ways when you become the head coach. You've got to still be that guy, but then you've got an issue when you're that guy with that type of mentality. I mean, that is, that is that's a that's a tough deal because players see right through it, and you, you can't be fake. You've got to be whoever you are, and sometimes right. that doesn't always mesh. And, and I think, you know, probably it was even more exacerbated back in, you know, it, it was, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was. It, it was a lot longer ago. You know, coaches on staffs had more, like, true roles of, like, hey, you're a good guy, I'm bench guy, you're a recruiter. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, it was sort of everyone had, you know, different roles as assistants that were a lot more defined. Now these guys are a little more well-rounded, but 100% because, you know, you, you go from being the player's guy to the guy who's, you know, whether it's, hey, you got a little issue down at, uh, you know, a little issue down over here, hey, co- co- you know, Coach Barnes is here, okay, let's, you know, all right. You know, Coach Barnes kind of picking everybody up and uh, not bailing people out of, of things. But, you know, stuff happens in a program. And, and there's always a coach who's there on the scene to kind of make sure, hey, you know, guys, come on, let's 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 get back on the right page here. And that's what he was. And then you bring in a whole new staff that, um, you know, they didn't know us. We had tons of continuity. We all knew Coach Barnes really well. And now his persona is, a, his persona is, is completely changed. And we're like, wait you know, what, what's, what, you know, type of thing. So um, it, it is hard. And I think, I think these coaches today, um, the guys that want to be head coaches um, and are real ambitious and aspirational like that, I think they have to be, you know, be careful of, you know, making sure that if they are elevated, you know, what is their plan and what's their persona going to be as a coach? So let's shift to the, uh, the university side of this a little bit. You're the chairperson for uh, the investment committee for the endowment. Um, I, let's be real basic here just to start out because I, I I've gotten this question a little bit and it's certainly not my area. Um, from an endowment standpoint, what is sort of the purpose and then beyond that, and I, and I know obviously you can and whatever, but what is the kind of the, the general reasons why that's not something that you pull from or that you use in operating ways uh, during a time like COVID or just in general? Yeah, just in general. I mean, I, I think every every probably endowment and foundation has different goals and has for di- different goals and how their money is used. But generally speaking, there it's endowed scholarships, and so it's money that's meant to uh, support scholarships over the course of time. And you know, you have a, a sort of endowment paid out every year to support those scholarships. And so, you know, different. You know, if you're you know, and the foundation is is a private enterprise, so it's really meant to support endowed scholarships uh, for. Uh, you know, across the board, I think the endowment pays out somewhere around, you know, uh, 13 to 15 million dollars a year to support those scholarships. And you know, obviously, you, as your endowment grows, you can do different things with your endowment. Our endow- you know, we're by no means sort of where uh, the Harvards and Yales and some of these super large endowments are. And so you have to, you know, it's not meant to be operating funds. It's meant to support. Uh, it, it comes from private gifts that are meant to support scholarships uh, through, through the course of time. And, and frankly, these, these scholarships run 
is really what supports um, a lot of students uh, to, for them to be able to attend the university. I'm, if I'm saying this incorrectly, you know, I'm not a, a finance guy, so pardon me, but is when you're looking at how to do this, how to build it, how to invest it, all these different things, I mean, is there a fairly standard way to do that? From, I mean, obviously, I would think from a risk standpoint, you don't want to go too crazy. I mean, what, what's sort of the general ideas of how you how you go about doing that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, my mom asked me all the time the same, now, what do you do at Ole Miss? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the endowment's about a $700 million pool of capital. It's grown from, in 2011, it was around $450 million to now oh, wow. close to $700 million. That growth has been a combination of gifts and of return from investing. So, um, uh, from, from investment returns. Um, so, you know, it, some endowments uh, stick to like a 60-40 stocks and bond, stocks and bonds and, and, and pretty vanilla. The more sophisticated endowments try to generate uh, what I would say better returns with less risk than just a, a stock, you know, just sort of stocks and exchange, you know, uh, ETFs. And what we try to do from a foundation standpoint is uh, figure out the, the right uh, balance of uh, generating excess return to all the benchmarks with the right amount of risk. And so, you know, and, and investing is a hard thing. It's investing in a, uh, you know, sort of the last six months have been, have been difficult. It's been difficult for a lot of uh, foundations and endowments. I think sort of the next shoe to drop, uh, I know college administrators all across the country, it almost included, are thinking through like, okay, what does it mean, you know, <laughs> Can, can colleges afford not to have school in the fall? And so, uh, you know, what does that mean for endowments? Are they there to support, you know, it's really not the use of endowments across the country. It's not really to support operations, if you will. So you probably just answered this in a little bit, and maybe this is in your area, so you can you can push it off to the side. But from a university standpoint, I mean, what, what sort of, from your view, you see as kind of the challenges as they're, you know, trying to make sure they get kids back on campus in the fall and everything and try to become some semblance of normal as uh, as this thing seems to be at least waning from a first wave or however you want to emphasize it. Where, where do you kind of see universities at as, uh, from, from a budgetary standpoint or just overall finances right now? Yeah, I think that I think across the country, it, it's and I've talked to different people at different universities that, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a multitude of problems, right? Because um, a lot of if you think about Oxford as an ecosystem, um, you know, a lot of the people that work at the university are or you know it, at some of the higher in the, some of the higher risk age categories, and so what does that mean? So it's it's not just the students you have to think about; it's all the people who service the ecosystem of the university, whether they work for the university or work for a vendor of the university, et cetera, and so forth. So um, I think the students are probably the lowest risk group. And so that's probably easier. It's, it's thinking through the service providers, the faculty, the, uh, uh, you know, those type people who, who probably fall in a higher risk category than students alone. So it's a vexing issue. I mean, and, and, and really, um, <laughs> It's, there's no right answer. I don't think there's a right answer. I, I think that there's some wrong answers that you only know they're wrong in retrospect. And that's a very, very difficult situation to, believe, but to be in. But I do think, from my personal opinion, is that not just at Ole Miss, but um, uh, for a lot of universities, and you, and you see some of these news articles and whatnot, that not returning in the fall has pretty 
maybe not disastrous effects on the university, any university's financial profile, but uh, we'll, we'll make uh, there quickly will be uh, sort of a list of losers that I think it may take some time to sort out. But it's a pretty bleak picture for a lot of universities if if there's no school in the fall. I know the story, but we're going to get you to tell it a little bit. You and I both uh, have adopted children. Um, mine went as seamlessly and as quickly as possible, almost too fast as we're trying to get everything uh, figured out. You had the the, the, the opposite uh, situation, multiple years uh, to, uh, to, to two children from, uh, from Congo. I, I guess I'll open it like this. Um, I, I guess why from there and kind of just take me through some of the uh, – the challenges and the struggles as that all played out? Well, there's really not a, there's not a good answer as why from Congo, except for it's where we ended up. And so uh, my parents uh, were fantastic growing up. Uh, My dad had a little small furniture store uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And, and, um, you know, he, he was always providing jobs uh, to young guys who really didn't have homes or had really bad family situations. And then we started playing AAU. There was always two or three kids that were living in our house or whatever. And, you know, I always, I asked my parents one time, like, you know, there was a kid that actually played at Old Miss called named Anthony Burks that, uh, uh, was a world-class football player and world-class basketball player. He was just really uh, ultimately lazy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Anthony, you know, my parents almost adopted Anthony. Uh, and he lived with us for, for, you know, in and out and just, you know, had a really bad family situation. So I'd always seen that example uh, with my parents and just, and I always asked them, like, why don't y'all never really go all in and adopt? And I think they said, you know, our age, you know, we can't really afford it and all these different things. And then, you know, I, I married uh, uh, Megan Flowers, who she also went to Ole Miss and uh, she was born and raised in the Delta. And I think, you know, both of us just had a heart to, to maybe make a difference somehow, some way. And um, we thought we were going to foster and maybe bring a foster kid and adopt locally. And I went to this business luncheon um, and when I was back when I was living in Little Rock, and uh, this guy had adopted from Tanzania. And he said, look, all you guys have, you know, hearts, or you're thinking through a lot of things. And, you know, I want to tell you, like in Tanzania, they sacrifice young women. And uh, he said, I highly encourage you to think about, you know, you know, adopting from Africa because sort of the value that they put on life there with, with some of these orphans is just, you know, it's not, and I went back home and told me, I was like, well, I think we'd be looking at the Africa thing. And uh, Little Rock had a lot of connections to Rwanda. We started in Rwanda, adoptions in Rwanda shut down. We went to, to Uganda, adoptions in Uganda shut down. And our adoption agency said, so we got this pilot program in Congo. And, you know, I, I think I missed the whole pilot in that pilot program and so long story short in congo you you, you sort of raise your hand to adopt and they immediately match you with a child where a lot of countries you're sort of in the queue mm-hmm. and uh so we we you know we were boom like we're like yeah we'll do it and i'm like boom and I'm like how about siblings and i my wife's like well uh you know what i was like well i guess because I you have other children at this time we didn't mention that yeah, for anybody I, doesn't I, know I, you yeah i have three other children i have three biological children i was like well i guess i checked the box along the way that said we're open to siblings <laughs> she's like siblings you check that box and so before you know we find it but then it took us it took us uh congo is you know it's the fourth worst place in the world uh i think north korea chad and niger are the only uh, are the only places that have less per capita income per person Per capita income in Congo is like $432 a year. It's, it's an awful, awful place. And so the corruption, et cetera, and so forth, you know, they, they, it's a really, really bad place. 
And so it took us nearly four years to get um, our girls out of the country. Um, and it was a long and circuitous route. And, you know, we were going over there finally to get them uh, for the last time. And, uh, you know, we step off, step off a plane and, uh, in Brussels and, you know, two bombs, bombs start going off. And so, you know, that, that had a, a auspicious beginning to our journey to get them. You know, it's like, well, we survived a terrorist attack on the way over here. What next can possibly happen to us? Um, so it was, it was crazy. It was, it was about the craziest 45 days. The, the, one of the consequences of the terrorist attack was we got to Africa. Uh, we finally get to, to um, get to Kinshasa and we had no bags and our bags never came. Um, but the funniest thing is I'm leaving Kinshasa and I knew I'd, I'd gone out to the airport just day after day, looking for our bags, looking for our bags. And I know that they're there. Like I know that they're there. You know, it's like, they're just looking for me to pay somebody off. Well, the last day I'm actually leaving, I left my wife in Africa, probably shows what kind of husband I am, but I was like, I got a job and I got three kids back in the States. You're going to keep, you hold it out here. I'm driving to the airport, going to the airport, pulling in. There's a guy who's getting off work who is a baggage handler and he's got on my old Miss hat. And so I'm like, I knew my bags were here. They pilfered my bags and that guy's walking around my old Miss hat. I was like, that's, that's just typical for Congo. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so finally we get back to we finally get back to the states and, and our bags our bag we beat our bags back to the states by like you know 30 days or something like that but there's a guy in congo walking around with all this head so are you getting updates how often i mean what is what is this process day to day month to month i mean how, how does this work when it takes that long yeah you you have um so the, the girls were in an orphanage in Lombashi. And uh, the orphanage director, we obviously supported them on a monthly basis, uh, but the orphanage director would send you kind of monthly updates. We made the decision that, look, we don't know if this is ever going to get to completion. So, you know, we don't want to go make that personal connection because what if we go make the personal connection and then it is all for naught? I mean, that probably further scars them. You know, it's like they had hope and now they don't have hope. So, uh, we would just get kind of monthly updates and we watched them grow up before our eyes. And, you know, they were, I guess it was, they were six when they got our turn. They're sort of, um, you know, birth dates are not absolutely certain in a country like Congo. So they were kind of five, six when they got back here, but, but they, they had, you know, um, they had lived on the street for two, three years of their life uh, before they went into the orphanage. And so um, they're, they're pretty amazing girls and they're going to do, they're going to do great things. How, what was the, what was the transition like? I mean, if you don't want me asking, I mean, you, you get them here, I mean, what's just from an acclimation yeah. standpoint, how was well, that? Well, I mean, so think about, think about it this way. Um, uh, I, I believe when we met them, they were likely, we were likely the first two white people they had ever seen. They had only ridden in a car, I think twice. And they spoke some version of French. It, it was kind of like a uh, like a Creole French kind of. It's like a you know my wife had, had learned Swahili for two three years because they told us that they spoke Swahili and we get over there and they speak sort of some derivative of French. And I was like, oh, what you gonna do with that Swahili? I let you know it, babe. It just was like, are you kidding me? You know. And so the the acclimation and the the whole thing. I mean, they, they it, it was it was a rough first year. It was a rough first year for us. It was a rough first year for them. And, you're, and your biological kids. 
Yeah, and, and for our biological kids, you yeah. know, it was, it was rough. I mean, um, but uh, you kept just thinking, like, man, are we gonna, you know, we're we gonna get to the other side of this? Is this gonna be? And and now socially, they're they're fantastic. I mean, they they've got more friends than you can shake a stick at, and you know, they uh, they, they uh, <laughs> they've adapted well to Highland Park. Uh, I guess would be what I would say. How long language take? It's still a struggle. Okay. Um, and, 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 and they will fake it till they make it because they know, like, but there'll be times where they, they will be like, hey, Daddy, what does, you know, what does omen mean or what does, what does uh, uh, transform mean? You know, they'll ask, but for the longest time, they wouldn't ask questions. And so they would just, they would just kind of fake it till they made it and, and try to figure things out. But the language, they can pick up other languages fairly easily, by the way, which is kind of interesting where it's Spanish or, or other, they're reticent to speak French, I think, because it's too many bad memories, but they, they, uh, they pick up the language. They picked up the language with, with very, with basically no tutoring, just by immersion. Uh, but there's still times where, you know, you'll see like a blank look on their face. You'll be like, you don't know what that word means, do you? And they're like, no, I do not. Did you learn any Swahili? <laughs> No, okay. negative. That was, I, I told my wife, I said, that's your, that's your department. You're in charge of the language department. <laughs> I guess last thing on this, was there, was there a thought, was it always going to be at least international? I mean, did you think of, of domestic adoption as well? I mean, how'd you kind of yeah, make even we, that we part We did. Of it? I mean, we did think of this. And we were, we actually, the, the irony is, uh, I have a great friend, uh, Griff Aldrich, who actually was on the uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County staff when they beat Virginia, and now is the head coach at Longview. Mm-hmm. And he had been a lawyer. He's got a great story. He'd been a lawyer for V&E in London and, and Houston. And, and we'd worked together business-wise and we were really, really good friends. And he'd adopted three domestically in Houston in the ninth ward. And um, we, he had introduced us to a lady that uh, did a lot of uh, adoptions. And right when we got, we got sort of the, we had a decision to make in a 48-hour period she called us and said, there is a domestic baby available for adoption. And we had literally just that day gotten off the phone with the, our agency and sort of synced up on the Congo and like said, yes, or, you know, we were like, had like 48 hours to think about whether saying yes to, to Ruth and Dorcas. And literally that same, like it was the most bizarre thing. And so um, we did think a lot about domestic adoption. Ultimately, um, you know, it, it, everyone's hearts pulled in different ways, and uh, it, it, we we ultimately found ourselves in Africa. But but you know, I, I do think that domestic adoption is wonderful, and, and I wish more people would 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 do it because I think it not only does it change the life of who you adopt, it changes your life in a positive way. How often are you uh you back this way? Oh, I guess I'm try to come to two, three basketball games a year. I come over three or four times a year for, uh, you know, the foundation stuff. Uh, there's another company in Oxford that I'm on the board of. So I would say pre COVID, I would say six to eight a year. Um, and you know, it's sort of depending on how good we are in football too. I mean, you know, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot easier to get fired up about coming from Dallas to, to uh, Oxford for football when, you know, we're a little bit better. Uh, so probably my fall trips have some correlation to our wins and losses in football. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and now I've got a 15-year-old. i got a 15-year-old, 13-year-old that uh, my 15-year-old is going to be a 10th grader at Highland Park. And, you know, it's old Mr. Texas is where she's going. Okay. So, 
um, I think I hope my my trips increase over there. So I'm just kind of curious from the last thing before I let you go. I know we've got kind of somewhat of a hard deadline. You you usually travel a pretty good bit just from a COVID standpoint. Do you anticipate that picking back up? I mean, I'm just kind of wondering business world in general. I mean, do you see travel coming coming back in too? And is there some ways where people are seeing it as, hey, you can do more over the internet and do more whatever. So maybe we are seeing a little different structure in just business travel in general. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, so I, I think it's a, it's a, um, I'll give you a good example. I was supposed to be in Atlanta yesterday for kind of a business development meeting, meeting a company for the first time. And, you know, I said, Hey, you know, I just, it's not that I do or don't feel comfortable traveling. It's like, I bet if you guys get on zoom and I get on zoom and we break it down for an hour and a half, uh, that I won't waste a whole day going to Atlanta. And we did that. And so I think it's going to, things will return. I mean, I was a good, good friend of mine has uh, several hotels here in, in town in Dallas and I was with him on Tuesday and he said, you know, of our 150 corporate clients, uh, 50 have said July one that it won't be business as usual, but travel, you know, that, that they'll be back to, to traveling. And I think that, you know, 50 will probably go to a hundred, uh, you know, labor day, but I do think the nature of business travel has sort of fundamentally been changed because you sit there and think about like yesterday, me going to Atlanta. I mean, I think of how productive I was yesterday versus spending, you know, four hours to and fro in it and, you know, schlepping around Atlanta and, you know, none of that's productive time. So I think productivity will go up. I think, you know, I don't think, I think once things have been known, people will still travel for vacation, but I do think there's some, a lot of business travel. People are like, you know, can't we just do that? We know each other really well. But the one thing you can't do, I think over video is collaboration, mm-hmm. collaboration and problem solving are a lot. And I'm seeing this with all my companies, uh, just as I've been, you know, zooming and, you know, now going to see a lot of them is collaboration and problem solving are a lot easier to do in person than over video. And, you know, so that's, I, I think that you're, you're never going to replace in-person interaction, uh, even no matter how well you know each other. Well, I, uh, I appreciate it. Give me about the right, I think I kept you about the right amount of time there. And let's, uh, let's do it again as we get sports back in, uh, in session. Excellent. I'd love to do it. Thanks, Chase.